The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au We have copies of the Word of God. Uh, some of us, like me, have so many copies, I've actually lost track of how many copies I actually have. In years gone by, men and women of the faith who knew and loved the Lord Jesus Christ would have given their right arm to have one page. I had a friend in Canada who's, who worked with uh, what's called Brother Andrew Ministries. Anybody here heard of Brother Andrew Ministries? Yeah, they went behind the Iron Curtain back in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and they took gospel uh, Bibles and tracts and so on behind the Iron Curtain to uh, allow Christians back there to have a copy of the Word of God. And she was telling me how um, it was just a thrill to give these people who had never seen a complete Bible a copy. It was, it was the most priceless thing they owned. And brothers and sisters, we come together week by week. We bring copies of the Bible. We uh, now use electronic copies, phones and tablets and iPads and all that sort of stuff. But they would have given anything to have a page of Scripture. Some of them would write it out on a paper, learn it, and give it to somebody else. And they would learn it, and then they would give it to somebody else and just keep passing along. And that's how they came to know the Scriptures. What a tremendous blessing we have to have the Word of God available to us. Take your Bibles, please, again to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, looking again at the, the topic of unity. And uh, we're going to focus, not initially, but in the latter part of the message, on the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Bible by which we have unity. We can have unity. What drives our conduct, what drives our attitudes, what drives our response to God and each other is the Word of God, the truth of the Word of God. Well, let's read together verse 1 to verse number 6 of Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul is writing and he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's ask for God's blessing again, shall we? Loving Father, we thank you for the Word of God. Father, we thank you for God who is the Word, who is willing to become flesh and dwell amongst us and walk amongst us. And Father, we give you thanks that through the Word of God we can behold His glory, the glory as of the only begotten, the Father in flesh and blood. And Father, we give you thanks that he spoke your truth. Every word that you gave him to speak, he did not fail to speak. And he spoke it in grace and truth, never once compromising grace for truth or truth for grace. 
Father, we ask you that you would draw our hearts close and you would speak into the heart of every one of us, that we would hear your voice speaking to us. We ask you these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been reading through my Bible, my Bible assignments uh, this week. It took me through the first part of the book of Acts. And I was just noticing again, remembering again, this great unity that the people in the book of Acts in the first couple of chapters enjoyed immensely. And I want to read you a couple of verses just to give you that idea. In Acts 1.14, the Bible says that these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In Acts 2, verse 46, it says that day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. In Acts 4, 24, hearing something, they lifted their voices. They heard the testimony of Peter and James and John as they came back from the the synagogue and the Sanhedrin where they had been beaten for their faith. And the Bible says they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, and so on. In Acts 5, verse 12, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. Now that's what unity of the Spirit looked like in the early church. There was a one accord, there was one mind. They gathered together with one purpose and one focus, and it was the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 2, verse 42, we have the devotion of this early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. That's to truth. They devoted themselves to fellowship, all together having all things in common. But that commonality that they had was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. They devoted themselves to prayer. They were gathered together day by day. And in the weekly meetings, they got together seeking God through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread, remembering Christ's death through the taking of the bread and the drinking of the little cup of juice or wine. We could add to that. They were devoted to the evangelization of a lost. You can see them as you read through the pages of Acts as they're out in the streets and the temple courts proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're going out and making disciples, but as a whole, they were enjoying the unity of the Spirit as a church. Now this text, Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, the message of the text, that text is a call to unity. All the urgings and commands of Paul work together to give one overriding call to preserve the unity of the Spirit. That's unity where the presence and influence of the Holy Spirit is. We are not called to build or manufacture that unity. We're not called to figure out and devise our own system of truth and practice in order to have some form of unity. Paul is calling us as a church to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. That is a unity that's already in existence. It was established before the foundation of the world. We have been called by God into fellowship with Him through the gospel to follow Jesus Christ. And we're called into, as it were, His unity. It's unity that's already established. 
So why must we be so diligent to preserve that unity? Because it is God's unity. It's a unity of the Spirit. We are a visible display of God's kingdom to the world. In other words, we're displaying the kingdom of God to the world that's out there looking on. Because Christ shed his blood to purchase our peace with him and our peace with each other. So we're to be diligent to preserve the unity and the peace that he has purchased. It is God's grace, by God's grace, that we are reconciled. It's God's unity we are called into, and it's God's unity that we are to preserve. Now, does that simply mean that we work to find the simplest, lowest common denominator of truth in order to have that unity? The answer is no, of course not. We must work together in mutual submission to God and His Word to work out what and how the Lord would have us to think and work in every area of our corporate and personal and family lives so that we have unity. We've got to work together. So we have differences about different issues. We're going to look at this in a second. But we got to work together to figure out what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach about this? And we submit ourselves to the Word of God and the God of the Word, not to figuring out what we have in common and adjusting to make it just sort of work together. This is our standard. Why is it ancient words that we go to for comfort and hope and truth and guidance? Because they are the Word of God. That's our standard. That's what we worked towards, worked, sorry, to submit ourselves to and learn from and bring our practice and our thinking into alignment with this. So then, how do we each work to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the local body of Christ? You got your little note sheet in the bulletin there. Uh, there's four things. We've already looked at two of them, so we'll look at the last two today, but there are four things like this. We are to live in Christ-like conduct, and you see that in verse number one, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. It's Christ-like conduct, number one. Number two, we're to live with Christ-like attitudes. He says in verse number two, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Thirdly, we're to live showing Christ-like tolerance. There is a tolerance that's called for as a part of the body of Christ. And we'll look at the difference between tolerance for what can be worked around and not tolerance for what we cannot accept. We'll see that in a second. Fourthly, we're to live knowing Christ displaying truth. Verses 4, 5, and 6. All of those ones there, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so on. All those things there... They're all there to display the glory of Christ to us. And we'll look at that at the end. So first of all, Christ-like conduct. And we looked at this about two weeks ago. And we saw then that we are called to know Jesus by experience, to walk with Him all through our day. Secondly, we're called to live in freedom from sin and religious slavery. And we saw that a few weeks ago. Thirdly, we're called to live in peace with God and each other. Fourthly, we're called to live lives of holiness. As God who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. That's a calling on us as believers in Christ. We're to live following Christ 
Where he goes, we follow. Where he leads us and calls us, whether it's around the corner or around the world, we follow his calling. We're to live enduring suffering and shame for Christ. And that is coming fast to our shores when we will suffer. We're seeing our brothers and sisters in far off lands suffering now. Thousands are dying for their faith in Christ in the days we live in, not just in the history. That conduct displays our relationship to Christ who calls us. The Christian life is a spirit-filled, joy-filled life of obedience, walking with Christ and becoming like Christ. It's conduct that's worthy of our calling to salvation in Christ. It's conduct worthy of the caller who is Christ himself. All of us living and walking in Christ-like conduct is in part the diligence that he's calling us to. So we're to be diligent to live and conduct ourselves in Christ-like conduct. That's exactly what Paul says there. I implore you, I urge you. It's a vital necessity that we conduct ourselves in Christ-like conduct. As we saw two weeks ago and we saw last week and we're going to see this week as well, that is only possible in the power of the Holy Spirit that God gives us to seal us and fill us as believers in Him. Secondly, we are to live with Christ-like attitudes. We saw last week, it isn't just how we conduct ourselves. It is, sorry, it's not just the things we do, it's how we do them. The attitude we express. We can do all the right things out of a sense of pride or harshness or coldness or indifference. We can be doing all the right things, but Paul says, no, it's more than that. I think I told you, my friend Roddy over at uh, Village Church, he often says to me, Nelson, it's not just what we do, it's how we do what we do. There has to be a sense of humility, a Christ-like humility, a Christ-like gentleness, a mild-manneredness, a lack of harshness and roughness in dealing with one another. They're a part of the fruit of the Spirit that the Spirit is producing in us. So we could easily add to Paul's list of three things here, Galatians 5 and all the things there, love and joy and peace, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. All those things are evidence of the Spirit of God at work in our hearts to change us and make us more like Christ. It's not only the work of the Spirit of God in us, which it is, it's also a call to us to put off the old man and put on the new man. We are on, on uh, Wednesday night, we're looking at all these different passages, Colossians 3 and 1 Peter 2 and Ephesians 4, talking about putting off the old man. You got a jacket on you because you're cold. You've put that jacket on, on, your, on the front there just to keep her a bit warmer. And so it's like that. We put on a cloak. The idea of putting on the new man is like putting on a jacket. We wrap ourselves in something that shows something different about us. And we are to strive in the power of the Holy Spirit to be putting on the new man, to be putting on Christ, to taking on those characteristics, those habits, those conducts, those attitudes that display Christ to the world. Becoming like Christ in our attitudes is in part our being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Thirdly, we're to live showing Christ-like tolerance. Notice what he says at the end of verse 2. He says, uh, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, 
showing tolerance for one another in love. Now, love is the motive for our tolerance. It's not just grumpy tolerance. You know, when you're, you know, you're waiting for your little sister to come along and you really want to leave and you just get, you're tolerant, but you're just, oh, you're urging. You're wanting to move along, right? Get behind her and give her a little encouragement with the, the boot of your foot. No, that's not the tolerance she's talking about here. It's tolerance that's in love. So because we have experienced the love of Christ, because we have experienced the love of God, because He loves us, so we love each other and we show a tolerance for one another. Now, this tolerance thing is a difficult thing because there are times when we're called to be tolerant and there are times when we cannot be tolerant. And we need to look at how that works itself out, especially in the life of a church body. We need that tolerance in love because there are some areas where we can differ with each other without breaking our unity. But then there are also differences that we must not show tolerance for. And you say, what are those kind of things? Well, there are unbreakable, unshakable truths which we must hold to. They're the fundamental truths of the Bible. The nature of God as Trinity, three persons in one God. The deity of Christ and his dual nature, two natures in one person, the inerrancy, the sufficiency, the authority of the word of God is a truth we simply cannot agree to disagree on. We must hold those things. The nature of our justification and our saving faith. If someone comes in here and begins to preach a gospel, it says, you know, if you run around the block 300 times, then God will save you. It's a silly example, but the idea is salvation through some sort of a work. And we would say, no, sir, we do not accept that because the Bible makes it absolutely clear we're saved by faith in God. We're saved through God's grace. There are some truths we simply must not agree to disagree on. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about tolerance for differences that are allowable. Okay, there are a lot of very well prescripted things in the Bible about how we are to do and what we are to do. But there are some things for which there is no prescription. We're simply told to remember the Lord, for example. I come from a tradition, the brethren tradition. We used to gather every Sunday morning at 9.30 in the morning and we'd have a 45-minute service just to remember the Lord. It wasn't, there was nothing else involved. We would sing and, and read scripture and pray together. And then we'd finish up that 45 minute service by remembering the Lord every Sunday morning. You say, Oh, is that a better way? I'd say, it's a different way of doing it. And then we have other groups that meet once every four months or once every three months to remember the Lord. We have other groups that meet once a month. I love the fact that we meet once every two weeks or we start, we include every two weeks our remembrance service. Jesus said, remember me. He didn't specify, well, you've got to sing three hymns, and then you've got to have a 15-minute meditation, then you've got to have five minutes of silence. He didn't spell it all out. So there's a tolerance. We come together as believers and go, you know what? We see this a little bit differently, but we can still have unity over those things. We had to show tolerance and long-suffering music, right? I have been in, oh, I can't even count now. Uh, say, eight churches over the course of my Christian life. And you know what? The number one contentious thing that there is a not very much tolerance over in every church 
And you know, when you go to theology school and, and you learn about the great uh, fights and debates in theology, Martin Luther and justification by faith, and you think, oh, it'd be so great to stand shoulder to shoulder with Martin Luther and fight for justification by faith. And you go back to your local church, and what are we doing? We're standing shoulder to shoulder or toe to toe, and we're fighting over hymns versus choruses, new versus old, piano versus guitar. And you're like, oh, look what happened. How we use music in church is something that we can have tolerance one for another with. I love the old hymns, and I love some of the newer stuff. There's a place for both. Those are the things that we should not, we must not divide over because it is God's unity. This is God's church. The world out there looks and says, ah, those Christians, they keep preaching about peace and salvation and being made one body, and they can't even agree about what music to sing. That's a shame to us. We're to have tolerance. We must, we need to show tolerance for one another. It's also in a case of maturity versus immaturity. We need to show tolerance and allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to do a work in each of us that we both might grow. And you know what? As that happens and we grow in our sanctification, our salvation, we become more like Christ. And all of a sudden we're going to discover one day that those great big fighting differences, they're gone. And you know what the really funny thing is? It might be that the tolerance you're showing is actually God's tolerance for you, or in my case, God's tolerance for me to grow up a little bit. And all of a sudden I discover, oh, you know what? I was the one that was wrong. <laughs> that happens, by the way, a lot. You begin to grow and discover, oh, wait a minute, that thing that you were just so willing to fight over, you were wrong. And all of a sudden the Word of God speaks to your heart and the Spirit of God does a work in your heart and you realize, you know what? You don't need to divide over those things. There can be a tolerance there. Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Someone comes in here and says, Jesus was just a man. He was just a really good man back in the old day. I don't have to have, to have tolerance for that because that is clearly, directly against the Word of God. I had two ladies knock on my door yesterday morning. And I thought, oh, here we go. So I opened the door and they're like, hi. And I said, hi. And they said, we're Jehovah's Witness. I said, really? They said, yeah. I said, so you believe that Jesus Christ is God? Oh, no. And I said, well, then you're not Jehovah's Witness because Jehovah is God and Jesus Christ is God. If you don't believe that, then you're not really Jehovah's Witnesses. So we really shouldn't call them JWs. We should call them NJWs because they're not Jehovah's Witness. They're not witnessing for what the Bible says. And we had a very lively discussion at our front door talking about whether or not Jesus Christ is, is God or not. And then finally she mumbled something about Oh, never mind. And then she just turned around and walked away and gave up. So I probably won't come back to my door, but that's okay. I probably could have been a little more gracious too in the way I handled her. But you know what? There is not one split second I'm going to give in to that truth because that's a lie. And we don't have to show tolerance for that. Moving on. Tolerance for one another in love includes the patient, gentle, consistent teaching of biblical truth in order to bring us all, 
not just the guy you're arguing with, but all of us into alignment with the truth of Scripture. Tolerance for one another in love includes striving patiently. I don't mean striving with each other, striving together patiently to understand and grasp the truth of Scripture and bring it to bear in our own lives. Tolerance for one another in love shows the grace of God to each other that we have received from God. Do you know how patient God is with you? He, he's patient. Not, probably not as patient as he is with me because I'm a very slow and stubborn to learn kind of fella. But God is so patient with us and He keeps putting His truth out and He keeps using His Spirit of God to, to call us and summon us to prayer and call us to read the Word and call us to speak to our neighbors and we keep stubbornly resisting. And He is patient and He is tolerant with us, but He keeps presenting the truth. And so tolerance for one another in love includes consistently teaching and sharing the Bible's truth with one another that we may all come under its teaching and under the truth of God and all submit to it and all live it out together. Moving on. Showing tolerance for one another in love works to preserve the unity of the Spirit by preventing division and disunity over issues that should not and must not cause disunity and division. It is a shame to the people of God when we break fellowship with one another over the most trivial and silly things. I heard about a, a church down in the southern United States I won't say that. Uh, Southern United States, and uh, they were building a new building, and they were ch- uh, changing some paint colors and arguing about the, the color of the, the pew cloth. In the event, uh, out of frustration, one of the members of the church got a chainsaw, and he went up to the roof of the building, and he chainsawed right along the length of the building and right down both sides of it. And he said, this is my church, and we're not going to have that. And he pushed it. They got it, like, split apart. And you think, what does that community think? They were dividing over the color of the cloth on the pews for their building extension. We're extending our building. There's going to be some discussions about color and all those kind of things. We all know there will be. I plead with God that we will be gracious with one another and whatever we color we pink, whether it's lime green or, or puke purple, we'll, it'll be all in agreement with each other and we won't fight over it. Because we're to be in unity. That Showing tolerance for one another in love works to preserve the unity of the Spirit by preventing division and disunity over issues that should not and must not cause disunity and division. The unity of the Spirit also has clear biblical truths that we must adhere to in order to have Christ-honoring unity, the unity of the Spirit. We are to live knowing Christ-displaying truth. The Bible says that Jesus Christ Himself is the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is contained in the whole counsel of God. It's all there for us to see and read and memorize and know. Truth is also presented in Scripture in what we call creedal statements. And what a creed is, in case you don't know, 
is a very simple, concise, memorable statement of truth that the early church used. You gotta remember, early church, we didn't have, or they didn't have copies like I do, dozens up on my shelf. They would have some copies of the Old Testament scriptures. There'd be a few, one here, one there, one over there. There might not even be one church with one copy of the Old Testament. There might be. Uh, the copies of the apostles' letters and the gospels that were being written were being distributed and spread around. But most people did not own their own copy of the truth. And so what they would do is they would teach the churches creedal statements. And you can find fragments of them in the New Testament writings as Paul and I think Peter and I think... Uh, I think James also includes little fragments of those creeds that they used. Now, this thing here from verse 4 down to verse 6, if you have, like my Bible, in verse number 4, the there is should be in italics. It's, it's written there specifically that way to show you it's not in the original. So what Paul actually wrote is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who was over all and through all and in all. And what that most likely was, was a baptismal creed. So often when we baptize people, we say, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? And they say, I believe. And we say, upon your confession of faith, we now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we lift them up again. That confession of faith in those days wasn't so much like that. They would repeat that statement. I believe one body, one spirit, one hope, one baptism, one Lord, all those things to give themselves a neat, concise statement of Scripture in a creed. And some churches... I've been in churches where they put up a creed, the Apostles' Creed, and the whole church stands up, and they all read the creed together. They repeat it, and they affirm what they believe as they repeat it back and forth to each other. It's not a bad idea. Sometimes it can come very formulaic, and it's just a rote thing. You just say the words, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound of the heaven, and you just roll it off your tongue. You don't even think about what you're saying. But those creeds were used to affirm what we or they as a church believe. And Paul wrote this in here. It's a, it's a baptismal creed written or given that the person who's being baptized would use it as a statement, a confession of their faith before they were baptized. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit requires us to know and affirm biblical truth that defines what we are in unity to and what we are in unity with. We ought to know the truth. Biblical truth inspired by the Holy Spirit was written and preserved for current and future generations. Biblical truth is what we meditate on. That means to think over, to chew over, to think about as many things that relate to that one text as you possibly can. Joshua was given the commission to lead the people of God. And what was he told? And this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt have good success, and thou shalt make thy way prosperous. Yes, I memorized it in the King James a long time ago. It's one of the only verses I can keep for like over 20 years now, stuck in my head. Meditate on the Word of God. He was given biblical truth. We have been given, we have been given biblical truth to memorize, to read, to meditate on. 
One of the greatest challenges facing the church during the last hundred years and still continuing today is a steady decline of the knowledge of biblical truth. Gordon Fee, who was a professor of uh, hermeneutics and New Testament at uh, Regent Bible College in when my friend Uncle Jack was going there, he said this. He said, Biblical illiteracy is the church's greatest problem. And that was in an era when there was all kinds of upheavals going on in the church, upheavals over extreme forms of charismatic maneuver and all this sort of other stuff that was just way out there. And he said, you know what the greatest problem is? It isn't that. It's that we don't know this. We don't know the Word of God. We don't know the truth, and therefore we don't practice the truth. And not only that, we fall for all sorts of errors quickly. And sadly, we've substituted the dictates of society's norms for what the Bible clearly teaches. The Baptist tradition, going back into the 1600s, are known to be people who are dedicated and committed to the Word of God. The Brethren tradition where I come from, same thing. So many Bible teaching, Bible church traditions who were dedicated to the Word of God have steadily pushed it aside and put it away. We have written thousands of books in the last hundred years on the Christian faith, and we have turned so quickly to a Christian book, and we have neglected the Word of God. There's a couple of men in my life. One of them is Uncle Jack, and he has a great library full of books. And he loves to go out and buy good Christian books, commentaries and old dictionaries and, and biographies and so on. But his number one delight is time in the Word of God. I think I've told you before, his one Bible that we used to study with it was so full of highlighter and marking and notes that you used to sit fully closed like that. He just couldn't close it anymore because the pages were so wrinkled and so worn. And he was very careful to keep everything flat and neat. But he had so much stuff in his Bible. And he knew his Bible backwards and forwards. We used to laugh about, not laugh at him, but laugh with him that if you cut Jack, he would read, he would bleed King James Bible text. He just so knew his Bible. The sad thing is we have turned away from the study of the Word of God to other books. And biblical truth is absolutely necessary to govern and dictate our Christ-like conduct, to fuel Christ-like attitudes, to understand where tolerance is demanded and where simple, where it simply cannot be. We need the truth of the Bible. Bible truth fuels love for God and love for each other by teaching and informing us much more about God and who He is and by helping us to see how wretched we are before God saved us and by teaching us what we are to become by the Spirit's work. So, what are these seven statements that display the truth and that truth is all about Christ? And you can see them on your note sheet there. And I'm going to go through these. I'm not going to, I'm going to unpack as much as I can in as short amount of time as possible. So I'm going to wind up the speed on my mouth and speak twice as fast as I've spoken ever before. No, I'm not, because nobody can understand a word I say. Here we go. There is one body. It is the body of Christ. From unity and fellowship in the garden before the fall of man to broken fellowship and disunity all over the world. It was in chaos once sin came. Christ 
Christ has paid the penalty for our sin. Christ has purchased peace for us with God and with each other. Christ has brought us into one body that displays the unity and fellowship with Him and each other. Every person from every time and every place who has faith in God is a member of that body. I love it when you go somewhere and you meet up with somebody and after a few minutes you're kind of going... I think that guy's a believer. Oh, I think he's a Christian. And they're looking at you kind of funny. You go, are you, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah. And we start talking right away. I was in a doctor's office. As the situation unfolded, it quickly became clear that both were realizing the other one's a Christian. And immediately there was a fellowship. There was a unity there because even though he went to a church somewhere away from here and I came to Noble Park, we have a fellowship because we are members of the one body of Christ. Like the old saying goes, you can pick your friends, but you are stuck with your family. And we are all the family of God and we have been brought into that one body. In number two, there is one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. In Ephesians 2, from being spiritually dead in sin, separated from God, under the dominion of the evil one. Now, Ephesians 2 makes clear, we have been made alive by God as a work of His Holy Spirit in us. We have individually been stamped or sealed. In uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, it talks about being sealed. It's the idea of taking a branding iron and branding a mark on somebody so it's absolutely indelible. You can never get rid of it. We're marked with the Spirit of God in us. And He points us to Jesus Christ. He glorifies Christ to us. He teaches us and reminds us of all that Christ taught us. He convicts us of sin that offends Jesus Christ. He reveals the things of God to us. He leads us into all truth, which is Christ's truth. He imparts hope and He guides us through this Christian life. Believers are not filled with any other spirit other than the Holy Spirit. Believers cannot be possessed by demons or Satan. Unbelievers do not receive or are not filled with the Holy Spirit until they are converted, until they become believers. We are individually, every single one of us, we are individually temples of the Holy Spirit, housings for the Spirit. And this church, and I don't mean the walls and the floor and the ceiling, I mean every single believer in here gathered together as a corporate body, we are the temple of the one Holy Spirit. Isn't that great? Just think. God gave us His Spirit to dwell in each of us. And when we get together, there is a corporate testimony. There is a, a fellowship and a relationship and identification with one another because we both have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. We are all sharers. We're all partakers in the one Holy Spirit who empowers us and teaches us and enables us to walk and live this Christian life. Why is it if we're all focused on Christ, living in the power of the Spirit, that we get more unity? Because we're all being governed and led and guided by the one Holy Spirit and pointing always to Christ. And it draws us together. Listen. I said it last week, I said it week before, I'm going to say it again today. The secret, quotations mark, the secret 
of living this Christian life is the power of the Holy Spirit in us. It's nothing else. You say, what about the Bible? Praise God for the Bible because you know what the Bible is? The words of the Holy Spirit that he gave men to write down. And we have them. You want to know what the Spirit of God's like? Read your Bible. It's like, you want to know what your wife's like? Read the love letters she sends you. You'll figure out what your wife's like. We have the Spirit of God. We also have one hope, thirdly. The hope of the glory of God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we... Sorry. We also... Sorry. I memorized it this week and my mind just went... And the lights went off. <laughs> Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. What's the one hope we have? Glory of God. But the cool thing is the glory of God's like a big uh, shell and contained within that shell, there's so many other things. We have a hope in God who will keep His promises. Our hope is in God who will have mercy on us. Our hope is in Christ's return in glory. And we will see Jesus who loved us and saved us. We'll see Him face to face. We will receive grace from God when Christ returns in glory. First Peter 1 tells us that. We'll share in Christ's glory. We'll reign with Him in glory for all of eternity. We're all called, brothers and sisters, to the same hope. If your hope exists inside the four corners of this world, I feel sorry for you. I really do. Our hope is so much better than everything that we can see. It's so much greater. And the older I get and the more frail my body starts to appear and feel like, the more I'm realizing what incredible hope we have outside of this world and this realm. There is one hope. It's a good hope. It's a lively hope. It's a sure and a steadfast hope. If someone introduces another hope, another another God, a different God, a different outcome, a hope not in God, there cannot be unity when there is a different hope brought up. Our hope is in God, one hope that we share. Fourthly, there is one Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are one body filled with one spirit with one hope, having one head, who is our Lord Jesus Christ, there can no, be no sharing of that role. We cannot have unity where there are two heads of the body. There is only one to whom we bow and worship. There cannot be both Muhammad and Jesus. There cannot be both Buddha and Jesus. There cannot be the thousands of Hindu gods and goddesses and Jesus. There is only one Lord, and He is Jesus Christ. Yes, Christianity is an exclusive faith. Christianity is not one of several possible options to get to God. All roads do not end in God. One religious road, one faith ends in God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation for the lost. The gospel of God's grace is not one valid offer amongst dozens. Only Christ as Lord gives us eternal life. Any and every other Lord will only lead to death and disillusionment. There is one faith. The faith that believes in God who raised Jesus from the dead. The object of our faith is God. In the person of Jesus Christ, our faith in Christ is a gift of God through the Holy Spirit. Our faith in Christ is the work of God in us through the Holy Spirit. Our faith in God comes through the preaching of the Word of God. Why is preaching so important? It's not just because preaching is my job and I want to keep my job. That's not it at all. Preaching is massively important because the Bible says faith comes through the Word of God, comes through the preaching. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. That's what the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, I believe it is. We preach, we proclaim, we declare, we share, we speak, we whisper, we pass notes, all sharing and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's how faith comes. Our faith in Christ must be accompanied by repentance of sin. No, you cannot believe now and repent later. That is not a biblical presentation of the gospel. The gospel has like a coin with two sides. On one side there is belief in God. On the other side there is turning away from sin. And they go together. You cannot take them apart and still have a valid gospel because it tears apart the idea that sin must be gotten rid of. By faith we repent and in repenting we believe. They go together. And the terrible thing that you do to the gospel, you try and split those apart. You create a great big problem for yourself. I've actually heard people say in church services that repentance as part of salvation is a gospel of works. That's heresy. Jesus said, unless you all repent, you will all likewise perish. He also said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. They have to go together. Faith and repentance go together. It's turning towards God in faith and turning away from my sin towards God. That's the whole idea. Christ is the author and the finisher and the perfecter of our faith. Our faith in Christ is a precious faith. It's believing God to keep His promises that He made to us. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You say, now how can you be so sure of all the things you pronounce so positively from the pulpit? Because I am convinced by the Word of God. I'm convinced by the Spirit of God that lives in me that says, these things are true. I'm convinced that Jesus is coming back in power and glory. I look forward so much the day when he returns. And faith will give way to sight and I'll see my Savior as he is. Number six, there is one baptism. It is the baptism of believers displaying a public identification of a life immersed into Christ. 
Biblical baptism is the full immersion of the physical body of the believer into water as an outward and visible sign of the recipient's regeneration by God and the recipient's saving faith in Christ. It is an outward picture of the baptism, the immersion into the body of Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the early church in Scripture always is, sorry, it always follows belief. There is belief and then there is baptism. That is a clear consistency all the way through Scripture. You see, what about the Philippian jailer and his household? Read it in its full context. In the full context of Acts 16, 30-34, Paul spoke the word to him and his household. They all heard the words of Paul. He and his household were baptized and they all rejoiced having believed. So the idea that some were baptized before their belief does not come from Scripture. Baptism is given only to those who personally believe. Baptism is commanded by God for all disciples and believers. It is not an option. I'm sorry, but I know that's going to rub some people the wrong way. But the reality is, Jesus said, believe and be baptized. When Peter was asked on Pentecost morning, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized. It was a clear expression of an outward expression of an inward reality that they had believed in Christ. And by the power of the Spirit of God, they had been brought into the body of Christ, were baptized into Christ and into his body, was showing the whole world, this is what I believe. You say, what about infant baptism? You know what? I wrestle with this. I went back and I looked through, I think there's 27 references in the New Testament outside of the Gospels about baptism and believer's baptism. I went back through and had a good, long, hard look. You know why? Because two of the men that God powerfully used in my life, not I didn't meet them personally, just the books they wrote, one was R.C. Sproul and one was J.I. Packer. And both of them would hold to infant baptism. And I thought, what am I going to do with this? Someone asked me one day, what would you do if J.I. Packer came here and wanted to preach in your church? Oh, man. I'd be like, okay, uh, Dr. Packer, with great respect, you can speak on anything you want except baptism. And that is exactly what I would say. R.C. Sproul, I, when he started preaching on the doctrines of salvation, 1992, I think I told you, I listened to the tapes of him preaching over and over and over and over again. Same messages over and over again, just trying to get all the truth out of it. God powerfully used him and his books to teach me the fundamentals of saving faith. And I hit the point on the chapter on infant baptism, and I just take a black pen and go, I love R.C. Sproul. I praise God for a life of R.C. Sproul who stood so powerfully for the gospel in so many ways. But I'm sorry, R.C. Sproul on this point was wrong. And I know that may rub some people in this room wrong too. But I have gone through Scripture, and I simply cannot find. I've searched the Scriptures to know how you can come to that conclusion, and I simply cannot find it in the Bible. It is something that came up after the Bible was written. I love those people to death. I really do. Praise God for them. 
I have great friends that hold that view. But the Bible says there is one baptism and it follows belief. It does not precede belief. Moving on. On that point, just about R.C. and J.I. Packer. Here's where it comes down to this. Our allegiance must first be to the Word of God and what it teaches, not the books and writings of men. And brothers, this is a little side for the message. I know we're going a bit longer, but that's okay. If I can say one thing to you, just as your own Christian practice and how you read, I have in the last little while been rather convicted about how many books I read, how many books I have in my shelf, and how much time I spend reading those, and how little time I spend reading my Bible. You know how often I go, you know, I need to, I need to think about the topic of uh, eschatology. So I go looking for a book on my shelf on eschatology. And my Bible's laying on my desk. And the reality is I need to leave the books alone and focus on my Bible. In case you're wondering, I'm not giving away my books for anything, so don't go and help yourself. But, but my plea to you is to be in the Word of God and make the study of the Word of God your first point of reference, not the books of men. Last point, there is one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. This is a beautiful, concise statement of God's fatherhood of Christ, the fatherhood of believers called into His family through Christ. It's God's creative glory as the architect and the engineer and the master craftsman who created all of existence for His glory. It's God's sovereignty over everything. Look what he says. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There is nothing outside of God's sovereign control. God is working in all things through the Holy Spirit. He's working through all things to bring about His sovereign will, His plan and His purpose to gather all things under one head, even Christ. It is also describing God's rightful place to receive all the glory and all the honor and all the praise from all his creatures. What a God we serve. Amazing God we serve. It's, it's, it's beyond human words to express it. I wish I could take a couple of sermons and just unpack that one verse. It's so rich. There's so much in there. But we just time. Which is a terrible excuse not to do it on all of them. Look, knowing these truths and unpacking them throughout Scripture drives our behavior as conduct fitting our calling. Knowing that biblical truth drives, it must drive our attitudes with which we conduct each other, how we, how we relate to each other. Where we know to say, you know what, I see what you're saying, but I, I just can't agree with that, but we can still have fellowship around Christ and we can sit together and we can pray together and we can love the Lord together. And knowing those two ladies, nice ladies, I'm sure, standing on my doorstep trying to tell me that Jesus is not God, I'm simply not going to have fellowship with them because I can't. We don't have anything in common. We don't believe in Christ. I believe in Him. They don't. There's no unity there. It drives our tolerance for one another. It drives our worship as a united people of God, reconciled by Christ to be His body, 
filled with His Spirit, baptized into Him, fully trusting Him and looking to glorify God in everything we do. I know I have given you a lot today. And there's a part of me I wish I could just take seven messages and unpack one body, one spirit, one faith, one hope, one baptism, and one God and Father. It would be nice. But I hope, if, enough, if nothing else, take that little note sheet home with you. Get out your Bible. Get out a good concordance. And use a digital one if you got one. And start looking up all those things about one body. Look up all the things the Bible says about one baptism. Look up. Study. Open this thing up and, and rummage through it. Turn the pages. Find the texts. Open up. Spend a time over a text and chew on it. I can stand here forever and preach. If that clock didn't go so fast, I would stand here and forever and preach. But I'll tell you right now, in all reality, no joke, the one person in the room who gets the most out of this is not standing on that side of the pulpit. He's standing on this side. You know why? Because it took me 10 hours, 15 hours to get all of this, to glean all this out of the Scriptures. If you as the people of God, if we, if us, as the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God who has been given to understand this with openness and read and meditate and study. Get out a notebook and start writing down. I'm amazed that when I, I, I have very bad muscle control in my hands. They don't work very well because of the pounding of a hammer for so many years. But now I'm forcing myself to handwrite and I find that when I write with a hand, not type, I think more clearly. Don't ask me why. It just happens. Get out a notebook. Start writing. Start studying. Take those seven things. Dig into them. Because the more you do, the more the Spirit of God will take those things you're digging into and they'll, He'll work them into your heart and your hands and your feet and your lips and He will change you more and more into the image of Christ. And that's what we're all about. Does that make sense? All right. Would you stand with me? We're, we're not going to sing the benediction today. We'll just close in a word of prayer.